Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. So what about Ozempic? Is it a fit for the food addict? Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am co-host today along with Molly Painshop. Today, we speak once again with Dr. Sandy Van. Dr. Van is a medical specialist in obesity medicine. She is a staff physician at MedCam and runs a virtual weight management program in downtown Toronto. She is not your standard bariatric physician. She has a unique focus in treating not only the physical and pharmaceutical aspects of obesity, but also the psychological and behavioral dimensions. We did actually interview Sandy two years ago, exploring how she used her understanding of food addiction and eating disorders with her weight loss patients. Today, we want to focus on the medication angle, particularly the new and exciting GLP-1s that are so popular right now. How has the widespread use of these meds changed her practice, if at all? And what can you tell us the appropriateness of these for the food addicts? Welcome back, Dr. Van. Hello, thanks for having me on again. You told us a little bit the first time about how you um, got into the work. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what's happened since that was a couple of years ago. Has your work changed at all? And why are you continuing to work in this field? Oh, why am I continuing? I didn't expect that one. Just for those of you who are new and tuning in and didn't re-listen to that (laughs) podcast two years ago, I'm a, a, a trained GP out of Toronto and I primarily focus my practice on obesity medicine. And I've been doing that since 2016. So we're coming on to seven years now. And since that time, since two years prior, I don't know if a terrible amount has changed except for the new media attention on treatments. I think at that time when we spoke, I was still using, I was still treating very similarly in the same way, except now a lot of my counseling is focused on addressing some of the questions and concerns that people have about some of these treatments that are available and that are now being more popularized by social media and celebrity culture. And so I think that treatment generally has been the same, but that the discussions maybe veer more towards dispelling myths and answering questions about some of the concerns. Yeah, when I was at the Low Carb Boca a couple of years ago, I was astounded to realize that the GLP-1s or some uh, preliminary version have been around for a while, but I hadn't heard of them. And so the, the fact that you mentioned the celebrity attention and the media attention, can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, why are we just hearing about it now when these have been around for a while? Do you have any comments? I know. Yeah, it it actually baffles me as well. I don't know what celebrity, I don't know what I was going to say patient zero was, (laughs) but I don't know what the source of the celebrity attention on it is. I don't know exactly what celebrity said it first, but I I do know that it escalated pretty quickly. And then it, it came to be known as this Hollywood treatment that even celebrities who didn't have obesity might be using. And then it it brought into question whether there was misuse of this medication. But I will tell you that I've been using medication since, let's see, I started in 2016 and I was primarily doing cognitive behavioral therapy for obesity. I was running into issues with that because a lot of patients I was seeing every two weeks were still hungry and still having intense cravings. And then it wasn't until I started pharmacotherapy that so something like liraglutide that was one of the first GLP one molecules that was approved for otherwise uh, known as Saxenda otherwise known as Saxenda at the time yeah. but once we once daily jack well, I started using that and then also Contrave which is now Trexobupropion and I started finding that patients were deriving great relief in their symptoms and they were seeing not only weight loss but relief from the suffering that they were experiencing from intense food preoccupation as they were losing weight so I I started noticing major differences clinically at that time. And then things have only gotten better since because we've seen new developments in GLP-1 receptor agonists. Now there's semaglutide, which is also a Health Canada approved medication. Semaglutide is known as the as Ozempic, but that's the diabetes indication. There's also another 
brand named Wagovi that is also the same active ingredient, exactly made by the same company called Wigs, and it's indicated for obesity. And the difference uh, between, we, can I just ask you, and the difference between those is that Ozempic is covered under insurance and Wagovi is not, or are they both covered? The difference right now is primarily brand name and dosing. So Ozempic comes in a one milligram formula. Wagovi will likely have a 2.4 milligram pen. So Wagovi you can dose up to 2.4 milligrams, but that's not really available. That's not available right now in Canada just yet. It's available in the U.S., but we don't have access to that. And so a it, lot of people, yeah, a lot of people are using off-label. It's not something that is meant to be advertised as off-label usage, but because the active ingredient is the same and off-label usage, as was a your trained GP as well, that off-label usage for medications is quite common practice. It happens to be that Ozempic is now being used off-label because semaglutide is Health Canada approved for obesity as well. So in order to crystallize that point, I think that it'd be important to recognize that ibuprofen, which many of us know and have used, can be branded as either Motrin or Advil. Yeah. But it's ibuprofen nonetheless, right? So that's the way that uh, I consider some of so Anyway, just to back up a touch, what would you say is the percentage of your practice who are actually on medication? The percentage? So I will say that I, I, I have to add this as a precursor to my explanation that prior to starting people on pharmacotherapy, I was engaged in like a 12-month program, high-intensity behavioral treatment using cognitive behavioral therapy. So some of those psychological aspects of eating, yeah. trying to promote self-regulation. And I've seen people once every two weeks for 75 minute visits. So I don't want to, I don't want to answer, but without saying that, because I don't want people to think it's only like, I'm only, I'm not only, but I'm only treating people with medications yeah. because it happens to be available. I, a lot of my patients are in the practice are currently on medication right now. It is now a once every four to six week, 20 minute visit. It's no longer a 75 minute visit yeah. in part because medications have made it so much better for patients' lives, that they have nothing to talk about in these appointments anymore. They struggle much less. And so many because it's a low-intensity weight management program now, it's no longer this high-intensity behavioral program. A lot of my patients are on treatment, and they're getting much better weight loss outcomes from that, and much better regulation and better quality of life because of that. So I don't know the exact percentage, but a lot of my patients are on it. But there are a subset of patients who are not on medication. Either they can't afford it or they don't want to be on it and they choose, they'd rather choose a behavioral program. But many people are, are being treated. So before we get to specifically the Ozempic, can you mentioned contrary. What are some other examples of medications that you use on a regular basis? Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up because I don't want people to think that weight loss medication is only yeah. <laughs> seven glutide. But there's four Health Canada approved medications right now. The first one I'll only mention briefly because I don't use it, but Orlistat, also known as Zenical, it's it, it prevents the dietary absorption of fat. And so namely, it promotes a calorie deficit by having people defecate <laughs> the fat that's been absorbed in their stool. So as a byproduct of its mechanism of action, I don't typically use that because it can cause side effects that are undesirable. Secondly, naltrexone bupropion, as you described, also known as Contrave, is a medication that is often marketed not only for weight loss, but to address cravings. And so it works with greater precision in the reward aspects of the brain, like the mesolimbic dopamine system. And so that's one that can be helpful because it also has an antidepressant in it and naltrexone is an opioid antagonist. So it's helpful for addictive eating behavior. Can I ask you, so I'm not pinning you down by stats, just your impression, your clinical impression. What would you, how effective is that? Because I want to compare them. So if you say, okay, oh. you I think Entrave is like 30% people do well. I'm not asking for stats, just your, if you're willing. Oh, just in my clinical observation? Yeah. Yes, yes. Oh my gosh, that's such a hard one because I actually don't keep track of this data and I should. But generally, it depends on the patient, right? It depends yeah. on the characteristics that the patient is presenting with, right. which I'm, I know that you're going to ask about later. But generally, if patients are describing intense food preoccupation, uncontrollable eating, they don't have to say food addiction. And to be honest, when people say food addiction, I clump it all under like food addiction and binge eating. I feel like those are distinct phenotypes of obesity, like obesity being this condition that's characterized by appetite dysregulation, right? So if they're saying uncontrolled eating, I think about 
contrave, but I also am privy to the data that semaglutide offers on craving reduction. So contrave has craving reduction data. Semaglutide also has craving reduction data. So it depends on the comorbidities. If they have other things that would be responsive to semaglutide, if they have prediabetes or other conditions that we have data to help support, I might veer towards semaglutide because it has weight loss efficacy that's higher than naltrexone bupropion. But at the same time, oftentimes you start people on semaglutide and it's not necessarily helping them with their cravings as much as they'd like. And then you intensify treatment with something like naltrexone bupropion. And then all of a sudden you're like, ooh, okay, relief. So I heard you say you would actually use both of them. Yeah. 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 I don't, I wouldn't start people both like on both at once, but, and and sometimes people prefer an oral option. So they want to do they want to go on country first and country is also a really good treatment. It's been around for a long time as well. Very popular in the U S as well. So yeah, it's a good treatment. It's just that in terms of weight loss efficacy, if you're looking at the data, we know that the like GLB one receptor agonist, namely semaglutide has higher weight loss outcomes than Lyra or naltrexone bupropion. Okay. So anyway, go ahead. Oh yeah. There's Contrave. And then there was Sixunda. Sixunda is Lyraglutide and Lyraglutide at 3.0 milligrams is another version of it indicated for diabetes, but it's at a lower dose of 1.8. It's a subcutaneous injection and it works similarly to semaglutide in the sense that it helps regulate blood sugar, but it also operates centrally in the brain to stimulate satiety. So people feel less hungry and they feel full sooner. But I will say contrary works by also promoting um, fullness. Yeah. I, I shouldn't just say it's a cravings medication. It, it works by signaling satiety as well. So now let's talk about the GLP-1s. Um, before you get into the specifics, can you just give us a, a, a broad explanation of why these things work or what they do? Oh, the ones, okay. So GLP-1s have been around since at least 2005. They've been said yeah. for a long time, since That's the 90s. I know they were more popular for type 2 diabetes and they became, once they be like, I remember in 2014, like there was liraglutide for diabetes that was approved, FDA approved shortly after Health Canada approved it. And then people were starting to rumble about how this is effective for weight loss as well. This is, we're starting to see this happen yeah. for weight loss and people were starting to use it. I could hear about people starting to use it off label for weight loss for patients in their, who had diabetes as well. And what it is, it's a mimic. It's a mimic of a hormone, a gut hormone that humans are meant to produce. And so the idea is that you're supplementing this gut hormone that helps promote fullness. Because when we eat, we get this flood of satiety hormones that's meant to come out and signal to your brain that you're full and it's meant to help promote metabolism and digestion. There's a whole myriad of things that happen. So GLP-1 happens to be one of these hormones that we've been able to detect and replicate. And so we're supplementing that. And people are feeling satisfied with less at mealtime and they're feeling less food preoccupation in general. That's my clinical observation. And then their sugars are getting regulated. So that's why it's thought to be effective for weight loss. But now with more research trials underway and more established findings from cardiovascular outcome trial data, we're starting to see that it's having an effect on cardiovascular health too, in a good way. Like we're seeing that it's likely related to anti-inflammatory weight loss, but a number of other things that are actually unknown. But people are seeing risk reduction in having cardiovascular events when they have obesity or diabetes or along with pre-existing heart disease. So there's some pretty incredible things that's now being studied for, like dementia. I know that it's being studied dementia because of its anti-inflammatory effects and possibly other things. So it's this weird Swiss army knife of a medication that I've never read or heard about <laughs> throughout medical school or residency, but it's exciting. But with that being said, I don't want to only sensationalize it. Yeah. Like there are risks associated with oh, okay. any sort of treatment. If you're augmenting a, a natural hormone, we thought about that with leptin and then we found out, well, you can get leptin resistance. We obviously thought about that with insulin and then you mm. get insulin resistance. Are we worried that a person might become GLP-1 resistant or whatever hormone it is accessing and they become resistant to it? In other words, yeah, if you continue to signal, is it going to, yeah. yeah. Uh, we, to my knowledge, I don't know. But I understand why that is a concern based on the things that you just mentioned. Yeah. What we do see is that we don't see, we don't necessarily see resistance, okay. but we do see that over time, your body begins to adapt to the treatment and people experience tolerance. weight stability, weight stability, tolerance, and and not, not only tolerance, but weight stability over time. And it's thought that 
it's because it's just one hormone, right? There's all these other hormones that affect your appetite. So there's reasons why you don't lose weight to infinity with this treatment. And you don't want that. You don't want that. You would die. Like, but but everybody's going to have a settling point with specified doses of the treatment because your body, everybody reacts a bit differently to it. And yeah. at some point you have to stabilize your body protects you from that. Now I've read in the sensational literature, mainly the celebrity stuff that people talk about how, I guess it's the people who didn't do well on it. Say the reason why I'm full is it makes me nauseous. The, the mm-hmm. thing is it fills you up. It slows your gut down. But what people will say is it makes me nauseous. I don't want to eat. I, don't, I feel so sick because of this. So what What is it about that, that some people have a reaction of they don't eat because they just don't feel well, which is not a great, if you can't enjoy your food, then what's the point? Oh yeah. This is the reason why it should be medically monitored. (laughs) It should not be prescribed online by somebody who's never going to follow you again. So I think that there are side effects associated with treatment and those side effects, the most common side effects are nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation. The two most that I commonly see in practice are nausea and constipation, but that doesn't mean that everybody gets it. Uh, And for the most part in my patient population, what I notice is that people for the most part will tolerate it if they do get it, but there is a subset of patients that don't tolerate it and they should either dose down or they should come off of treatment And by the way, all of this information is not meant to be medical advice. Everybody needs to see their own doctor about this. So it's not individualized treatment, right? The thing about like the nausea causing or the nausea causing a physical aversion to eating, that is not the mechanism of action of this treatment. If it was, it would never have been approved. I think a lot of people- I think that's what I was getting at was, is it the nausea that that's why- It's not. That's not the mechanism of action. If it was, it wouldn't have gotten approved. For some reason, Orlistat happened to get approved for weight loss based on its, like the mechanism of action is its side effect, right? But nowadays that wouldn't have passed. The mechanism of action is meant for weight loss is centrally mediated. It is that it's signaling to the appetite center in the brain and regulating satiety. Nausea happens to be a side effect that should be temporary, but for some for very small subset of patients, in my experience, it's not only temporary. Sometimes they always, they just have it. But when they come off of treatment, it should resolve. There are a lot of people who actually do enjoy their food. They just don't need that much of it. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. They just eat it in more modest quantities. They feel satisfied after they eat it as they should if the, if the medication's working. And then if you got to respect your fullness, if you're full, then you stop. That's what I tell patients. Otherwise you do put yourself at risk of things like heartburn. Heartburn is an issue if you're overeating because you, like you said earlier, the gut motility is slowed. Gut transit is a bit slower, especially at the beginning of the treatment. It's not meant to be forever though. There were some studies underway that, or studies that have been done that showed that should resolve after 14 weeks. And I forget the study it was, but it shouldn't be a permanent effect. Yeah, Especially yet- it should not be permanent beyond the treatment as well. If you discontinue treatment, that should in theory resolve. Yeah. You mentioned already the addictiveness that it's actually being considered as a drug for addiction, not even for food. Just can we use this for some of our um, people who are alcoholic or cocaine addicts to help with addiction? Have you seen that it's made a difference? Uh, I've seen a difference. Uh, Clinically, I've seen people have less interest in alcohol. I've never actually used it for alcohol use disorder or any other substance use disorder. But for alcohol, patients do describe less interest feeling satisfied with much less or not wanting it at all. And that's a very welcome change for me because I don't actually, I think alcohol is too normalized in our culture. And I don't really think, I I think that we drink it too much. (laughs) I think we drink too much of it. I personally don't drink it, but uh, I I feel like it causes a lot of problems that we don't really point out. Uh, So yes, I I think that there is, there's studies underway for that, but clinically I do see that it's, those studies are substantiated. People are describing less alcohol intake, which is great. I think we're going to hear more about this drug just on that angle itself. Uh, Okay, now let's talk about some of the side effects. So what are some side effects that we're worried about? So you mentioned the the nauseousness and the constipation, but longer term side effects, potentially tolerance. What else are people worried about in the long term? Because we got to be on this for the rest of our life. So it is meant to be a long term treatment. And I will say that the black box warnings on the treatment are the things that scare people the most. And I'm only highlighting that for comprehension for comprehensiveness. But there's a black box warning on the treatment that you can't be on the medication if you have a personal or family history of medullary thyroid cancer 
or multiple endocrine neoplasia because they were seen in preclinical rodent trials when they first studied this molecule over 20 years ago, right? So we don't give people the medication if they have that or a history of acute pancreatitis. When it comes to short-term side effects, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, heartburn, some people describe a bit of fatigue when they're starting the medication. So we do watch out for that as well. I always tell people that with this medication, your appetite window is a lot narrower, which means that the quality of the calories that you intake is a lot more important. Hmm. And now that the medication will take away some of that drive to eat more or that preoccupation with food, that'll be dampened. So it'll spare up some attention. And now with your new bandwidth of attention, try to focus that on choosing what the high quality foods are available to you eat lots of protein, aiming for at least 30 grams per meal in general, like assuming you're eating three meals, distributing that throughout the day so that you can preserve lean muscle mass. I always worry the most about people losing lean muscle mass, especially some of my adult patients who are in more advanced um, years of their life. You always (laughs) worry about that because the gravitational pull is to lose muscle mass when you start to age, right? Especially in menopausal transition or postmenopause, you always have to worry about bone mass and lean muscle mass. And so making sure that they're eating a, a really rich quality diet. I think that the people who are, are sort of naysayers of Ozempic do talk about that, the uh, potential uh, the bone loss, the muscle mass, lean body mass. I think it's called Ozempic face yeah. in the celebrity speak. But with that, but with that being said, though, like yeah. the loss of lean muscle mass is not unique to medications that are for weight loss. That is something that is applied broadly to any weight loss intervention, whether you're on a diet, a calorie restriction, like anything, when you're losing weight, your risk of lean muscle mass loss is there. On average, people lose 30 up to 30%. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to lower that amount and preserve it. So it's not that SEMA, semaglutide or ozempic is causing lean muscle mass loss. It's that any weight loss is going to come along with muscle mass loss if you don't if you're not careful i was just gonna say that's the example of when somebody loses weight quickly their their face looks really thin and it's that same yeah 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 i think people are just trying to keep the news headlines on when it comes to i think i feel like the the headlines around some glutide and ozempic are just it's just they're just getting rinsed and repeated they're using stuff that is circulating or from the drug monograph but if you're getting prescribed it by an MD, the MD should be telling you about some of these things in advance. <laughs> so how do you decide when somebody should be on it? And then what is a, a typical day in your life now with people on this medication? But the criteria for yeah. initiating pharmacotherapy for weight loss is generally like a BMI over 30. BMI is an, it's a crude measure. Okay. Yeah. I say that really <laughs> with that disclaimer. Uh, it's a crude measure because in theory, a bodybuilder could be somebody who has obesity when their lean muscle mass is high, right? So it doesn't distinguish between fat and muscle, but anyways, BMI over 30, BMI 27 or BMI over 27 plus comorbidities. But you also have to consider some of the ethnic variations because we know that certain ethnicities are at higher risk with lower BMI cutoffs. For instance, South Asians, their cutoff is a lot lower because their risk of insulin resistance and diabetes and cardiometabolic conditions is higher at that cutoff. So with that being said, there's the BMI criteria. But for me in particular, I'm looking at not only BMI, but how that excess weight is actually impairing their health. And that's actually now part of the definition of obesity. It's no longer just BMI. It's about what is this? How is this weight actually impairing this person's health, whether it's mechanically, medically, or psychologically? And so a lot of, I look at comorbidities, prediabetes. Does this person have type two diabetes? Does this person have high cholesterol or hypertension that would benefit as well? And then I talked to, to the patient about, because at the end of the day, I can recommend a prescription, but if the patient doesn't want to take it, because they're worried or because they don't want to inject or because they don't want to take something twice a day, which contrave is, then there's no point, right? So it's really a patient-centered discussion. Like, what is it? How much weight are you hoping to lose? I always ask that because I know that, but I do always ask, what is it that you think that you'd be able to more meaningfully move and engage in activities the way you'd like at whatever weight? And then I get a percentage weight loss in my mind. And then because certain weight loss medications have percentage weight loss outcomes associated with them, right? So if you're looking to lose 20%, then you're maybe some of the lower, like the medic, the earlier medications we talked about might not be able to achieve that. Whereas semaglutide might, 
Yeah. And then the comorbidities are important because some of these treatments like Ozempic or is a diabetes medication. So if you have diabetes and you're looking to lose weight, you should likely consider that one. If you have smoking and you're wanting to, if you're smoking and you want to quit smoking, maybe you want to consider Contrave because it's got a medication in it that as is actually used for smoking cessation. So those are the things I look for. And then it's up to the patient. Hey, food junkies listeners. We're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. So if you'd like to join Vanessa, be sure to do so by following the link in the show notes. Our workshop is $50 US and it will be held Friday, March 1st, March 8th, and March 15th, 2024 at 5.30 p.m. Eastern, planning for an hour and 15 minutes. Now, if you're in the Sydney, Australia area, that is Saturday, March 2nd, Saturday, March 9th, and Saturday, March 16th at 9.30 a.m., except Saturday, March 16th is one hour earlier, 8.30 a.m. due to the time change. So be sure to check those show notes and join us for this amazing workshop and getting the opportunity to work with Vanessa Kredler. Hi, I'm Vanessa. I'm a psychotherapist based in Sydney, Australia, and I'm so excited to invite you to this workshop with Sweet Sobriety this March. It's called Befriending Your Inner Critic with Internal Family Systems. Do you share this experience? Some of us, when we're struggling with food and weight and body image concerns, we often find a loud inner critic inside of us. And those inner critics, they can be so relentless and so persistent and they keep demanding improvement and perfection and action. And they have such high expectations and that can be so exhausting for us and that can lead to a lot of internal conflict and feelings such as shame and anger and frustration and also a sense of worthlessness. And then we hear so much advice around beat your inner critic, silence your inner critic, conquer it, fight it. But I'm wondering, what would it be like if we made friends with our inner critic, if we could change our relationship with it so that we actually become allies? And that's what this workshop is all about. So in three live experiential sessions, you learn how to befriend your inner critic through the lens of internal family systems. So in those sessions, you have an opportunity to experience IFS through experiential exercises, to share with other group members, suggestions for creative home play in between sessions and you'll also be able to download the slide pack and get the recordings if you couldn't join live and what you'll learn is you'll first gain an overview of internal family systems and what it's all about why inner critics exist and also experience what it's like to get in touch with your own inner critic and you'll learn basic techniques of how to meet with and dialogue your inner critic so that you can then eventually gain a pathway towards transforming your relationship with it. So I hope to see you there. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. What about the person who says, I I just want to lose 20, 30 pounds and I've stalled. I'm stalled and I just can't get there. Oh, there's other things to consider at that point, because we always, we don't, the reference point, like the baseline weight is not the weight that we use as a reference point. So if we're talking about, let's say we're talking about 10% weight loss, by the way, five to 10% weight loss will help somebody reduce their risk of like long-term medical problems by a lot for when somebody has obesity. So we're not looking at, we don't need 50% weight loss to improve your health outcomes, but Let's say that somebody has already come in and they've lost 10% of their weight already, and they're wanting to add another agent. They're wanting to identify with medication and they want to lose another 10%. I might not start you on a medication that only allows for up to on average of 10% weight loss, because we know that you've already achieved that 10% because that medication's weight loss effect is going to be assuming that your baseline was the highest weight, right? So this, we go by set point theory. So you started at 210 and now you're at like 190, then we don't think that the med adding a 10% weight loss medication is going to add another 10%. We're thinking it's going to probably help you maintain Uh that 20 pound weight reduction, right? So you have to consider that too. It's from the set point. 
So that might be why somebody who's already almost normal weight, maybe overweight as opposed to obese, where the Ozempic may not make that much difference. It might, it depends on what they're looking, what percentage weight loss they're looking at, right? They want to lose that extra 30 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. If they, and I work in percentage weight losses. So, cause that's how the weight loss outcomes are presented for the medication. But let's say it's, they've lost the 10%. I'm not, I'm maybe not going to, if they're looking to lose another 10% and let's say it's based on personal preference, like maybe, or you know what, to make me myself feel better. Let's say it's based on mechanical limitations or they're going in for a surgery and a knee replacement and they need, they want to lose more weight to recover and to undergo recovery, to have a smoother transition to recovery. Let's say it's that (laughs) not personal preference and body image, then yeah, you probably added a higher, a more higher effective medication like semaglutide because you'll add another possible six to 6% weight loss because the average weight loss outcomes for like Wagovi, let's say is 16%. Wagovi being the weight loss medication that is higher dose. Also Ozempic, right? So yeah, higher dose. So yeah, I I hope that wasn't too abstract or difficult. It's just, it's no hard. It's not, it's hard when somebody comes in saying, I need to lose 30 pounds. I often question that. We're talking cosmetic. It's cosmetic. Would you say, no, we're not going there? Or would you say, okay, sure. I'm I'm a bit leery of that. I am a bit leery of that because body image dissatisfaction is a construct of not only your weight it's a construct of like how society views certain body types it's all it's mainly a construct of your own thinking right i'm not saying that it's wrong to want to lose weight to feel better body image like i would be lying if i said that didn't matter to me at all but the thing is, is that oftentimes what i'll find is that people move the goalposts right like they'll have to tell themselves okay, 10 pounds and that's all I need. But then they're like, okay, let's do a little bit more. And then you keep pushing it. But physiologically, they're blaming themselves if they can't push it anymore. When in reality, there's like this neural, there's this reflex for your brain to protect your weight. So the peril of doing that is that there's only so much you can actually realistically do before you start to really suffer and not be able to sustain. And then you start to blame yourself and then it erodes even further at your self-esteem and even worse since your body image dissatisfaction. A good classic example is when patients tell me, I've always had, and I never ask about, I always ask about when did your weight become a concern to you and I never ask them, when did you start having a BMI of 30? Because I want to understand this person's psychology around their weight and what their lived experience is like being in a higher body weight. And so oftentimes it's adolescence. It's at the age of 10. They'll remember that time they were picked on by the fourth grade physical activity teacher for being too overweight. Like they remember that so vividly. And, and But they'll look back on old pictures and say, you know what? I hated myself back then, but when I look at pictures of myself now, I'd be so happy. Like I did not have a weight problem. So that's just an example of how body image dissatisfaction is a construct of their own thinking. So CBT is really helpful in that sense. You can reframe the way you think about yourself by interrupting some of those negative thought patterns that arise when you see a photo of yourself, an image, because we got to start like working from the inside out. Yeah. That's important. And taking this medication, I, I alluded to this earlier. It's not like you just keep losing and losing weight. Eventually there's a no. stop. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, and this is why I collaborate the medication with CBT. I don't primarily do medication because I know that there are these very predictable cognitive barriers that will arise when people are undergoing their weight loss experience and progress. Because I've had patients who come in and they they say, oh, my, I got this online doctor to prescribe me so and I stopped treatment because it wasn't working. When in reality, when you explore the history a little bit, you realize, oh, it was working, but this person continued to have crippling self-image problems and mood dysregulation and all of these other things that were happening. But the treatment was actually working. It was doing its intended purpose of helping with appetite regulation, but there were a lot of other things going on in that person's life that should have been addressed and monitored. Now, have you had the experience where somebody has taken the medication They've lost the weight, the goal, and then the, their insurance plan. I'm always worried about the fact that you get on there and now you're stuck yeah. on it. What do you do? Because it's very expensive. Can it they continue? Really what happens when they've reached their goal weight? Does insurance continue to pay? Yeah. It's, it, it, no, I shouldn't say, yeah. It's a very individual yeah. basis. We're starting to see a lot of that now. So for my patients, because remember, not everybody's on that treatment that you're talking about. For those patients, a lot of patients are now seeing that companies are clamping down and the budget's rising because these treatments are understandably very costly to some people that they have to pay for it out of pocket or they have to 
they have to dose down, go down to a lower dose to see if they can maintain. The idea of CBT with the medications, like yeah. I always tell patients this is part of CBT is in helping you stay intrinsically, maybe not motivated, but committed to the lifestyle behaviors that are helping you also maintain your weight. Yeah. So how do you start, how do you start like engaging in more physical activity? Cause we know physical activity, maybe not be the most effective thing for weight loss, but it helps people maintain and buffer against weight regain yeah. really well. How do we incorporate that even though you don't really want to do it? Like how do we engage in more CBT principles to help you do things that are important to you, but that you don't actually want to do. And so we have to, it, it's more of a doubling down on those sort of protect, protective strategies, those yeah. behavioral changes. Here we are, Food Junkies Podcast, yeah. and we're interested in food yeah. addiction. And is this appropriate for the food addict? The thing that I worry about is that, quote, you get to eat your cake and have it too. <laughs> I get to eat the sweets, but I don't overeat. <clears throat> My window, oh, you said it wonderfully, the yeah. window yeah. it's a tool. So yeah. can we use it as a tool where you've got that window and you want to stop eating the sugar and you've got tools to keep it off when you have to get off? The thing is that, hold on. Yeah. The thing is that when they do discontinuation trials and naturally with similar to any other chronic disease like diabetes, if you withdraw treatment, you tend to see the physiology just relapse and go into go back to what it was doing before. The exception to that would be like bariatric surgery where uh -huh. hormones often regulate or normalize. But with this treatment, it is meant to be long-term, but I don't say that you have to be on it forever. I don't say that only because I don't know what's going to happen. And what in your life can you actually say you're going to do forever? <laughs> Confidently. I don't, I, there's not very much I could say I would do forever behaviorally. So I often say, consider it a trial if it's working, then yes, the benefit of, that you derive from being on it will rely on ongoing use. But if you over time can't pay for it anymore, then yes, it'll mean that for anybody, but especially you, that you want to really try to incorporate those lifestyle changes that you have been meaning to make, whether it's being more active, whether it's like eating in a more organized way and self-regulating more at nighttime, for instance, with eating behavior like really trying to consolidate that and build that new mental groove so that it becomes yeah. a new channel for you to go to. And so that it makes those old behaviors more foreign. But we always know that those dormant behaviors that you're trying to, you know, reverse are always there. Exactly. So but, but if yeah. you, if you acknowledge that you're a sugar addict, a food addict, and start from the get-go saying, okay, I'm no longer hounded by these thoughts, so I'm going to stop the sugar so that the drive is not there when the medication is off. They haven't been eating sugar. So it's like they haven't been taking their opiates. They don't have an opiate debt. You see what I'm saying? I see what you're saying, but through the obesity paradigm, yeah, we know that when you withdraw that GLP-1, even if, or whatever treatment it is, yeah, even if you, they've been eating quote-unquote clean for a long yeah. time, their appetite... Because we know that hunger is hunger encompasses both homeostatic or like eating for fullness, yeah. hunger and fullness. And there's also the hedonic aspect. You're naming the hedonic aspect yes. of food, yes. right? So a lot of people have more heightened reward sensitivity. And so everybody's a little bit different with that, which is why there are certain people who are more prone to addictive like behaviors. But Absolutely. at the same time, we know that there's that other part of the brain that likes to set the thermostat at a certain point and regulates with good precision right. weight at a certain range or like blood sugar and blood pressure. So when you withdraw the treatment, that's what's going to put you, yes. that's what's going to put you at risk. I'm not saying that keep staying off of foods that are too tantalizing or irresistible to that person is helpful. That is definitely helpful. But at the same time, we know that person might feel like they actually need realistically need more calories to feel satisfied. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. Yeah, there's no good way to answer the the original question you proposed, which was themed on let's do lifestyle behaviors, let's consolidate that so that when you come off treatment, you can maintain. I actually know that when they consolidate lifestyle behaviors, if they come off treatment, it's a grind. It's a real grind. Like a lot of my patients who have had to do that have had to go back on treatment because they understand like that their appetite is really overwhelming them. <laughs> they could feel it. They could feel it almost immediately uh, oftentimes. So oftentimes I get these patients to go down on the dose or if like very rarely when they come off, yeah. yeah, when they come off of treatment, if they come off of treatment, I just get them to monitor their appetite 
and their monitor their weight with some degree of regularity so that they know what the the periodic trends are looking like. I'm going to ask you a hard question, all right? Hey. This is an expensive treatment and we see that obesity trend is getting higher. Is this a cost-effective solution for society? Is this not a band-aid? You know what? I've done a, a number of talks on this area of trying to advocate for access to treatment because it is so expensive and a lot of patients don't have the money to pay out of pocket, understandably. Is it cost effective? I think that the one of the rate limiting steps for insurance companies to determine whether it's cost effective is that we don't yet have the data to support that paying up front for a treatment is going to necessarily lead to cost savings later on for other treatments. What I will highlight, though, is that I'm a little bit biased, obviously, that I think that all my patients are deserving of treatment, given the, that they've been put through the ringer with our diet industry. I will say that the top 10, the top 10 classes of medications that are typically that, that cost the most for insurance companies, and they do this annual review of this, eight out of 10 of those treatments are typically associated in some way with obesity. Yeah, yes, diabetic medication, high blood Diabetes. pressure medication. Exactly. Cholesterol. Yeah. Cholesterol. Even I'll even say the mood regulation yeah. uh, or like the antidepressants, things like that. They're highly associated. Not everything is caused by obesity because there's a lot of other things that can contribute to those things, but they can yeah. be exacerbated or be rooted in it. And intuitively, when we treat obesity, will we see an improvement in all of these other things? Likely, I would assume. I often take people down on the dose of antihypertensives or take them off antihypertensives. And but the thing is, their quality of life is much better. And so the other thing to account for in terms of cost savings, which maybe is not as quantifiable, is absenteeism and presenteeism. How many days does this person take off because they're sick from something that's related to their weight? How engaged are they actually in work? And so that will be the role of the insurance companies to establish whether they can in some way measure that appropriately. But I think that based on what I see, most of my patients feel that their quality of life is way better when they have their weight treated. And is it a cost-effective solution? I don't know. I'm not an economist. Yeah. I'm not an economist. Yeah. And yeah. That's beyond my scope. I, I treat individuals, not populations, right? Yeah. But Fair enough. Yes. Yeah. And if I can ask you another hard question, are we not letting the food industry off the hook? Because we're fixing the person so that they don't want to eat as much of what the food industry is giving, which is obesogenic and also heightened reward beyond the ability to say no. Are we not letting the food industry off the hook? You know what? That's actually a really hard question. I don't think that I don't think we're letting them off the hook. I think if anything, we're going to see sales and ultra processed food go down. If we continue to give access, people access to treatment. I, I, I think that the food environment really like is, is of, you know, what we see now is like a very high obesity and overweight prevalence in in our continent, not only in Canada and in North America, 30% have overweight, 30% have obesity. That's 60% yeah. of the population. I had somebody ask me once to provide, I get these media interviews and they were asking me to provide weight loss tips for the average consumer. And I was saying something about pharmacotherapy and she was like, no, but that's for people with obesity. Yeah. I need something for the average consumer. I'm like, to be honest, 60%. Yeah. <laughs> most, the average is that most people have overrated obesity, but are we letting, I'm not letting them off the hook. I don't know what the answer to that is, Vera. I'm not letting them off the, off the hook. I think if anything, the food industry needs to play a bigger role in addressing some of the concerns we have to date. Yeah. Some of this reminds me of the uh, HIV era where the meds were catastrophic, just catastrophic, but they were essential, obviously life-changing for people, life-saving. Yeah. And they ended up having to force the food industry, pardon me, the food industry, the pharmaceutical industry to make more reasonable costs, at least in some places like the medications yeah. sent off to other countries. They had to cut the price down. Maybe that would be the goal. Yeah. Because well, the popularity, the thing is that we're just seeing the beginning of what's to come. Yes. So I, it was only it, it was only in 2017 I started prescribing Sixenda. So it, that was that wasn't that long ago. And now we have this. Now we have some glutide, and now we have even more. Yeah, do you know what's coming. you know what's in the pipeline? Not that I can say. Oh, <laughs> not that I can say. Um, not right. that I could say. But I'm going to say that it's. Ho I'm hopeful, <laughs> yeah. and that I I do think that there will likely have to be a change in the cost of treatment given like competition. Yeah. But right now, I I will say that 
medications are they're expensive to make. They're expensive to make. And so I have patients who will describe paying a lot of money for supplements, but these supplements don't undergo the same scrutiny and mm -hmm. regulatory processes and screening that pharmaceutical products do. Like we know that obviously there's inherent, there's risks associated with medications, but at least I know that when I'm getting prescribed something, it's been, it's likely taken 10 years for that to go down the pipeline to get screened for safety, preclinical mm -hmm. studies, human okay. studies, post yeah. I feel like it, there's a lot of money that goes into making these meds. I'm not saying that they should be super expensive, but I, I understand why they cost money based on how they're made and researched and how much money okay. goes into that as well. And in the, as you said, since 2017, we had a daily injection and now it's a weekly injection and who knows what the next concoction will yeah. be. HIV medication used to be 20 pills a day and now it's one wow. like one yeah, yeah, yeah. big change. But it yeah. sounds to me like this isn't going to go away. This is given that there's rising obesity rates. I don't think that this medication is going to go away. No, I don't. Right? No, I don't. And I think that I follow the obesity prevalence trends based on the NHANES data. And I actually think at some point that these trends are going to go down finally. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that it, it is a very, medications are a very scalable approach, much more scalable than bariatric surgery, which is the most effective option for obesity management that we have right now. But it's hard to scale that. And yeah. not everybody wants to undergo right. surgery. <laughs> and also, isn't it that some people who've had bariatric surgery also go on these medications too? Yeah, some. Yeah, there are some people who do that and, and they benefit greatly from it. They benefit greatly. Yeah, because you can regain on surgery. But for the most part, I do see a lot of people have success from surgery. It's just not everybody qualifies for surgery either. Some people yeah. are in, the, in between, right? Okay, so I just want to ask you, the food addict comes to your office and says, I am struggling with my food. Do you think that Ozempic or some version of that would be an appropriate medical response? And I'm obese, so there's probably some pre-diabetes in the picture. Is that something you would go, yeah, this is a good idea? And if so, uh, what would you, how would you manage that? Yeah, I often ask about the history. So I'll ask about what they've tried before, because sometimes people... Have it. It's very rare that they come to me because they've been referred at this point that they come to me and don't have any experience with weight loss attempts. But it, I always ask just to be sure there are some people who actually don't have any nutritional literacy whatsoever, whether they're new to the country and the food is new to them and or that they, they just never were taught. And so sometimes I start off more conservatively, <laughs> like it doesn't always need to be jump the gun to medication right away. And sometimes the expectations for that person aren't necessarily to lose weight. Sometimes it is really just to develop some self-regulation skills and to try to see what they can do more conservatively through cognitive behavioral therapy. And they don't care so much about the weight loss piece. But if it is, if they're saying, hey, I've got food addiction. And for me, food addiction, again, under the umbrella of uncontrolled eating, and it's yeah. hard to distinguish between binge eating. Like that, to me, is an indication that, oh, okay, this person likely has a lot of food noise. They likely have a heightened reward sensitivity, which we know it varies between people. They might feel like they have loss of control when it comes to like acts when it comes to having these foods available. If that's the case, I would go for a, a medication and it's up to them whether they want to start on Ozempic or Contrave, but that's a discussion that's worth finessing the details over. Are you right. smoking or do you have a mood disorder? Because there are other things that can yeah. contribute to uncontrolled eating as well, right? Like the psychological aspect. So does this person have ADHD? Does this person have depression that's not being treated or anxiety? And I will say that binge eating disorder is also considered like a psychiatric diagnosis, but has like overlaps with this uncontrolled eating yeah. like that you're describing like food addiction behavior. And that one actually has a medication that's not a weight loss medication, but is a yeah. stimulant that is often used in ADHD, which can also uh, put people into remission with their yeah. binge episodes. So oftentimes that's I not, even right. think about that. So yeah, like I, I will think Ozempic is one of, or some glutide is one of the tools in my toolkit. But it's not always the first one. Yeah. And then for us working in the field that we could use it as a tool, but we're going to also look at the other aspects of it, especially knowing that when the person goes back out there in the wild of no medication mm -hmm. and their appetite comes back, that at least they have the reward piece addressed. Yeah. The reward piece can may or may not be addressed often. Sometimes when patients describe if they if a patient is saying, I've got food addiction, I can't control it, I'm drinking like 10 diet pops a day and uh -huh. I wake up in the middle of the night. Yeah. I wake up in the middle of the night to eat uh, and hide it. In the back of my mind, if they're asking for Ozempic, yeah. like a GLP-1, I'll, I'll give it to them 
but I'm often monitoring for those symptoms still. And I'm not surprised when they're still present. Exactly. Like they're still eating, yeah. even though they're full. Yeah. Like That's it's what a food addict yeah. does. They're yeah. So, so yeah, if they're still waking up in the middle of the night, they're eating, but yeah. they're eating a little bit less. We're still going to want to manage that. <laughs> we still have some work to do. So it's not, it's a great treatment, but it is not a magical one size fits all treatment. Yeah. I consider it a foundation. We'll see how it goes. And then we could, we should reassess. It'll give you maybe some bandwidth to, to do other things, but it's not going to fix everything. And you can't just passively, you can possibly use it, but that's not the way that I want my patients to use it. I want them yeah. to take an active collaboration in the treatment and really see it as a way to tweak or refine the behaviors that they've been wanting to incorporate into the rituals and daily lifestyle okay. to promote and, better health. And just one more question. The kind of weight loss that you can expect from something like this could be as high as 20%, right? So if a person is 200 pounds, that would be pounds, right? Everybody's a bit different. I say based on the, the clinical trial data on semaglutide for 2.4 yeah. milligrams, the average weight loss outcomes are roughly 16%, but that's an average. So some people lose more, some yeah. people lose less. Right. But I, I have seen clinically that people can lose upwards to 20, 20%. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Last question. Thank you so much for this wonderful talk. We have our signature question. We've already asked it, but I'll ask it in this way. If you had known about Ozempic as a younger self, what would you have said? What would you tell a younger version of yourself about Ozempic? From a clinician perspective or from a civilian perspective? <laughs> from an older, from an older you perspective. If I had known about Ozempic as my younger self, what would I have said? If your younger self would probably have wondered about it. Ozempic or Wagovi. Yeah. I would have thought, wow, this is the medical condition I thought it was going to be. Because remember, when I, I told you this before, when I was younger and it was a, a training in family medicine, I told an MD, my supervisor, that mm -hmm. I wanted to get into weight loss or weight management. I forget the words I used at the time. And she said, why wouldn't you have just become a dietitian or a nutritionist? She didn't even say dietitian. She said nutritionist. Uh -huh. And she said, family docs don't do that. And so I think that if I'd heard about treatment for weight in the way that it's being used now, I would have been so elated because <laughs> I would have been so validated and vindicated. Like I would have felt so good that it is a medical problem, the way that I'm seeing it in my practice. That is not a lifestyle problem. Lifestyle problems get fixed with lifestyle changes. Medical problems get fixed with both lifestyle, but medical interventions as well are often considered, right? So I would have been pleased and hopeful for my patients, I think. Thank you so much, Dr. Sandy Van, for a wonderful conversation about these medications that we all want to know, but are afraid to ask. And you've told us. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one -on -one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.